Welcome back for another episode of Learning Crypto with Amy on the Hacker Noon podcast. This episode is sponsored by Bybit, the cryptocurrency trading platform to take buying, selling, trading, and earning crypto to the next level. Visit bybit.com to learn more. And on to the episode. So I remember a certain time in my life where... The crypto hype was really taking off, maybe 2017, maybe 2018. And I remember all of my coworkers talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and investing in it. And I was like, listen, guys, I'm over here hustling for the real money. Okay, I don't need to learn about your digital currency that doesn't even exist. And here I am in 2021 not the one who came out on top of that one. So I'm excited to go back and figure out what Bitcoin exactly is and why it became so popular. And is it the OG cryptocurrency? Afternoon podcast. Joining me today to answer all of these questions is the wonderful Andrew Levine, who is the CEO of Coinos Group. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Excellent. I am your host, Amy Tom, and this is the Hacker Noon podcast. So let's get into it because I have a lot of questions about Bitcoin. Let's start with what is Bitcoin? (laughs) Oh, gosh. One of the things I try to avoid when talking about this technology, and it's my job to do that. It's my job to talk about this stuff and explain it in a really effective way. And one of the things that I always try to do is avoid using the same old explanations that people roll out that hasn't worked as far as enabling people to understand what this stuff is. Uh, Medium of exchange, digital currency, immutable database, right? These are all kind of the buzzwords that you you often hear when, when you hear about this stuff. Instead, I like to start by taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. What is the problem? that they were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. What is the problem they're trying to solve now? What were they trying to solve when they invented it? And what is the bigger picture that this technology fit into when it was released? And I think that really boils down to, we had the internet, we had a way, we had a technology that enabled us to interact with one another directly in a peer-to-peer manner, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Computer to computer. But what we didn't have was a way of actually transmitting value between one another, transacting with one another. We could talk, we could do blogs, we could share files and things like that. But if I wanted to say, buy something from you, right, over the internet, what did I do, right? And and this one, if we wanted to trade some good, you know, let's do this experiment. How would we have exchanged that value? I don't know. Did PayPal exist back then? <laughs> right. Okay. So PayPal, right? Now uh-huh. let's think about PayPal. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. PayPal, right. Filled that niche of yeah. we need, we, we want to do this exchange, but what is the currency of PayPal? Dollars. It's dollars. You're killing it. You're doing fantastic, right? So we've got a new technology, the internet, but we're still using 
dollars. And that means mm -hmm. we're still using the traditional banking system. We're still using right. the ACH system. And there's still this enormous intermediate layer of people, all of whom charge fees and the process. So the process is slow and expensive and it's not native to the internet. And mm -hmm. the, the fact that it's not native to the internet is really at the root of all the problems that we have when we're trying to transact over the internet. It comes from the fact that the dollars are a separate system that are older, more antiquated, and they don't just work with the internet. And so what Bitcoin was an attempt to build an internet native me medium of exchange currency. Okay. Would you say that Bitcoin was the first crypto? As far as I understand. So Bitcoin was not the first to introduce the idea of an electronic coin or a mm -hmm. token. Tokens have existed for a super long time, arguably before even computers existed. And then they took on a new meeting within computers that were used heavily in the internet. I think we only started using the term cryptocurrency after Bitcoin, but what, what Bitcoin really did was the, the real innovation. The real innovation was the invention of the blockchain. But another way to put it is that Satoshi Nakamoto combined cryptography with economics mm -hmm. and an electronic coin. So this kind of, this, this loop where you create an electronic coin, not a new invention. You combine it with cryptography, not a new invention, but mm -hmm. you use the electronic coin to incentivize people running the network to play by the rules. And it is that system, that, that cryptographic economic system or token economic system that Satoshi Nakamoto invented and in, in, in Bitcoin. Okay. And that's what we I call definitely... a cryptocurrency. That's what we think of as a cryptocurrency. And so in that sense, I would say, yes, he invented the cryptocurrency. Okay, great. I definitely need to get into more about Satoshi Nakamoto. But first, I want to know, how did we decide that Bitcoin had value? You know, like it's digital coin, right? So who and how did we assign a, do a specific dollar value to this digital coin that theoretically doesn't actually exist? Yeah, so whenever I'm talking about this question, I like to make the distinction between value and price. Because in my okay. experience, uh, these tend to be two terms that people often confuse and conflate. Value and price are different things. Value is essentially utility. An iPhone is valuable to me because it helps me do things. I use it for things. The iPhone has a price and the price we tend to feel, the price maps roughly to the value. But I can find you a large number of people, many of whom are engineers for some reason, who would say <laughs> that Apple overcharges for their phones, right? Uh -huh. An Android phone is cheaper than an iPhone and it does all the same things. It's just as valuable as mm -hmm. an iPhone, but Apple charges you more. And that's bullshit. No, so, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, that, that's their argument, right? And yeah. so what they're saying is that, oh no, the price is 
wrong. The price is higher than the real value. And the <laughs> that's the answer to that is the market sets the value, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, sorry, I did it. I did it. Guilty. The market sets the price. price. Okay. Right. Right. We can argue all day about why Bitcoin is a valuable piece of software and why Mm -hmm. the features that it has, which are very minimal, are insanely valuable. But at the end of the day, when we talk about price, when we talk about how much one token is worth in dollars, the only way we get that is through a market, through a system that enables buyers over here to communicate with sellers over here, price, and then perform an exchange. And that's mm-hmm. how we can say, yeah, that uh, Bitcoin is worth $60,000 because if you want to buy one, that's how much you have to pay. Okay. So talk me through what happened when Bitcoin really started to gain value then. What was the market like at that time? Why were people so interested in it? That kind of thing. You did it. You made the mistake, but it's okay. It gained price. The oh, price it does. Went okay. Up. okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> the price went up. Um, it's still debatable, believe it or not, whether Bitcoin has any real economic value. It has an incredible price. And again, we can argue it has value. I will. I am happy to argue that it has value, but many people argue that it does not. And part of the problem, and I, I, a strong argument on that side, is that it has admittedly ceased to deliver the value that it originally proposed. It was originally supposed to be a, a peer-to-peer digital currency that people could use on the internet and that could facilitate real transactions by something of very little value yeah. on the internet fast. It's not fast. It's not cheap. People don't use it for that. It's become, it's transformed into something else. But other people can argue, and I gladly would, that it is still valuable. That thing, that 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 use case that it now has is still incredibly valuable. But to answer your question, my argument all along, I found I I found out about Bitcoin, read the white paper, and was aware of the project before it was ever on markets, meaning it had no price, right? Mm-hmm. It's worth nothing. It's worth nothing because it wasn't on markets because markets for Bitcoin didn't exist. And that was a really interesting time to be a part of. Though pretty quickly, people started exchanging them in real life. So you had something called local Bitcoins and like .com or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people would meet up and I'd send you my Bitcoin using my phone or laptop or whatever. And you would give me US dollars, right? Oh, um, mm-hmm. okay. And, and so, and so there began to be price discovery that way. And then people started building real online exchanges. There was Mt. Gox, which famously collapsed or got hacked. I forget. But the way that I thought about it was if, so, so what they were doing with Bitcoin was trying to create money out of thin air. Right. The technical description of it is money. You've got a token. It can't be double spent. It's stored on a ledger. We knew that the definition of it satisfied what money is. At the time, it was insane. It was borderline insane 
to imagine that money could be created without a central bank. Yeah. All money we knew about was central bank money in in a sense. But for a lot of us, when we read this white paper, we thought, wait a minute, this is money without a central bank. That is amazing. That is an incredible innovation and it has some value. If it has some value, if you can create money and money is value, money is useful. I think we all agree. We like using mm-hmm, money. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it has its uses. And if we can do that without a central bank, it must have some value. What stuck with me was the thought, if it has some value, then it should get some price. Right. And, and if it gets a price at all, that will be a breakthrough. That will be the first time that money without a central bank, or at least in recent history, whatever, um, could be created out of thin air with not not, not just the central bank. Arguably, shares are a kind of money. There are other kinds of money, but no central entity, no one, no company, no person, no, no institution, no central bank, but money. And if it could acquire a price at all, that would be such a remarkable breakthrough that even if it became worth a penny, first of all, Mm -hmm. that would be amazing. And that would be Mm -hmm. great. And that would be interesting. There's 21 million of them, you know, 21 times 0.01. That's not nothing. Okay. We did this little experiment and we created a, you know, a few thousand, few hundred thousand dollars worth of money. Cool. That would be cool and interesting. But if you think about it a little more, it's, it it becomes the potential upside beyond that. it, It is difficult to calculate because if you can create something worth $100,000 out of thin air, what's to stop it from becoming worth a million, 200 million, a trillion dollars? Yeah. What is to stop it? Nothing? So yeah, there's only 21 million in circulation. So there's a fixed supply of them. And so that's the argument about why the price of individual Bitcoin can go up and up. The price is highly speculative. And yes, I think that there are many constraints on the growth in price of Bitcoin. The problem, the good and the bad of Bitcoin is that we have no idea what the upper bound on the prices Mm. because it's very irrational. It's very speculative. There's a lot of ideas about why Bitcoin is valuable and why it will be more valuable, like useful. What will people actually do with this thing in the future? There's a lot of Mm -hmm. ideas, but at the end of the day, we're still in a highly speculative market. And But what I mean by that is that the people who are funneling the money in are admittedly speculating the future value as opposed to saying, look, I'm going to use this for this other Mm -hmm. thing. And that thing is going to produce all of this like tangible value. I'm not saying yeah. there's anything wrong with speculative value, but that is the, the, the state of the space at the moment. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, sorry. W- one more point I wanted to make here is that maybe something to keep in the back of your mind is that these are all open source technologies. Anybody can copy Bitcoin. Many people did copy Bitcoin. So there's competition. 
in this space. And mm -hmm. many people have argued and will continue to argue that there are better solutions than Bitcoin. And so that would be the biggest threat to Bitcoin is that there is, a, you know, an excess of competition. Right. Okay. So this seems like a good time then to go into the Satoshi Nakamoto. And who is this person? And what is this white paper that everybody's talking about? So Satoshi Nakamoto is a, an anonymous individual who wrote a white paper. So we don't know anything about who he or she is or they are. Could be more than one person. Whenever you have an anonymous thing, it invites speculation and imagination. But the truth is, we just don't know who they are. White papers like the Bitcoin white paper had come out before. There, there was a lot of people doing similar work. Bitcoin built on a lot of previous work. And I, I personally think it's best to take a step back, just look at the white paper, read it on its merits. It's highly innovative, but it's not the Bible. They mm -hmm. took a number of interesting concepts. They were clearly a software engineer. They took a number of interesting concepts that had been explored before, combined them in an elegant system and communicated it in a fairly accessible manner. And they delivered the right solution at the right time. It was after 2008, the financial crisis had happened, faith and confidence in central banks and the federal government were at an all-time low, and people were looking for a new kind of money, a new kind of economic system, and Bitcoin really fit into that slot very nicely. But I think that people are too eager to imagine that it was all this intentional plan by some super genius, when in fact it was probably some combination of high degree of intelligence, high degree of foresight, having your, your finger on the pulse, but also just getting lucky and delivering uh, the right thing at the right time. And mm -hmm. I, I love the white paper. It's something I've probably read dozens of times at this point and, and go back to it all the time. But it's because of its elegance, its simplicity, and because it was definitely written by a very human person. There's nothing supernatural mm -hmm. in that white paper. But it's a description okay. of the Bitcoin system in, in, in very few pages, far shorter than most white papers are nowadays. Mm -hmm. And so it talks about, like at the end of the day, what it is, a description of what Bitcoin is and what it is intended to do. Yeah, it describes, like I said before, what they did was they combined established cryptographic tools, cryptography tools. Cryptography was a, was basically a computer science discipline that emerged out of World War II. And they combined that with economics to create an, an elegant system of incentives to facilitate consensus over a shared database, specifically a shared database of token transactions. And so in that paper, they described that system at a fairly high level. Okay, this is, we use Merkle trees, we use hashes, and we combine that with proof of work. So it's really like Merkle trees, hashes, and, and a random numbers generator. The, the, the combination of those three things 
And the use of a token within that system is what they described in that paper. Okay. All right. What is a Merkle system and a hash? A Merkle tree and it's a hash. Both of those are they're, they're computer science phenomena. It's I'm not a software engineer. I'm probably not the right person to ask about what exactly those things are. When you hash something, it's a way of basically obfuscating the underlying information. So it's, I have your name. I want to encrypt it. I, I, I hash it. I, okay. I turn it into a hash which allows other people to verify the underlying information without actually seeing the underlying information. And a a, a Merkle tree is a way of taking, oh God, and this is dangerous territory because like I said, I'm not an engineer, but a Merkle tree is a way of basically condensing a lot of information into into one output so that you can verify all the underlying information. So similar to a hash, Mm. but I think Merkle trees are more useful when you're dealing with the history of transactions. So you've Uh, got all all this history. You don't want to store all of that in one place. Otherwise it gets really big. So you, Mm -hmm. you, condense it using a Merkle tree. It's just a cryptographic thing. uh, If people really want to know what it is, which very few people do, I I recommend Wikipedia. Mm, Okay. And so like the way that this relates to the blockchain, as I have come to understand, are you saying that like per block on the blockchain, then there are Merkle trees and hashes. And then that is why you can only see the certain information about like the previous transactions of the block. Does that sound accurate? Yes, more or less. I think the important thing, again, to take that step back and look at the big Mm -hmm. picture, when we're talking about a blockchain, we're talking about grouping transactions. Like remember how I said what we wanted to do with the internet allows us to interact with one another, but it does Mm -hmm. not allow us to transact with one another. So we wanted a way of enabling us to transact with one another. And so where the blockchain comes in is that it's a system of grouping transactions into blocks and then enabling and then helping people to construct chains of blocks together so that we can mm-hmm. all maintain the same database, the same chain of blocks I have on my computer is the same chain of blocks that you have on your computer. And we're constantly updating this chain of blocks, which we now call a blockchain. But I believe that in the original Bitcoin white paper, in the Bitcoin white paper, he does not actually use the term blockchain. He uses the term chain of blocks. Mm. And that was a term that emerged later because we were like chain of blocks is a, <laughs> is a unnecessary Not as long sexy way as blockchain. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody must've coined it, but yeah. So, so, you know, that's why we call it a blockchain. The, mm-hmm. the crypto, the, the cryptography. Yes. Like you said, it obscures a lot of the underlying information. And so it protects me financially or my personal information, like that kind of thing. That's what the purpose is? No. Oh, that's not the purpose. 
Yeah. Okay. And that's a good thing for, for people to bear in mind. So for example, in Bitcoin, there, there's a way to add additional information to the blockchain. And if you put your social security number in there, I'd be able to see it. So that, that's not a good idea. It's also not a good mm -hmm. use for Bitcoin, but, but yeah, no, that's not, that, that's not ah. what it's there for. In fact, what it's there for primarily is, so here's another way to think about, so here's how to think about blockchains, right? You were asking me about Bitcoin, this specific implementation of blockchain technology. Blockchains are a game where players are pit against one another to maintain a version, to maintain an accurate version of a database. Mm. That's, and they're all competing for money, for points, if you will. And those points are the cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin, right. the, ether, the Ether, the coin with a K, if you're dealing with Coinos, our blockchain, right? It, it is a game. And the game is, let's have a database that all says the same stuff. Everybody's version of the database says the same stuff. And in order for you to update the database, you have to do a bunch of stuff. You have to play by our rules. You have to do a bunch of stuff. And if you play by our rules, you'll get a reward. You'll get some of this crypto. And now, so that's really at a high level, my opinion, what a blockchain is. Now, whenever you have a game like this, by the way, basically humans are just game players. Almost everything we do can be reframed as a game. But whenever you have a game, we're such good game players that if you give us a game to play, some people will immediately start cheating. And if yeah. there is, <laughs> right? And if, in fact, the problem is with games that if there's a way to cheat or what we call an attack vector, then it will be exploited because even somebody who wants to play by the rules will understand that the attack vector exists and will get exploited by someone and so if somebody is going to exploit the attack vector, it might as well be. I right? might as well. Oh, yes. Okay. Of course, so this brings right? me to a very important question of mm -hmm. Bitcoin. When we talk about Bitcoin in that, is it regulated slash can it be regulated? Yeah. So just the last point that I wanted to make there is that what the cryptography really does is it obscures enough information uh, about the network so that bad actors can't abuse the system. And that's a very overly mm -hmm. simplistic, very abstract way of putting it, but it's more about ensuring that the people who are updating the network and trying to compete for these rewards mm -hmm. can't do something that doesn't benefit the network, mm -hmm. can find some loophole and get more rewards and not play by the rules. That's really mm -hmm. the purpose that the cryptography plays within the system, as opposed right. to, for example, protecting your personal information. Right. Um, I'm sorry. So what was because your, like what everybody, was the regulation of Bitcoin, because mm. everybody then all of the players can see when you have a game, the system. Right. And that is how it's regulated. So regulation is an interesting word. Most in certain contexts, when people hear the word regulation, they think government regulation, mm -hmm. which is obviously a perfectly valid use case for it. But it can also mean like, how do you regulate network resources? Like, how do you regulate 
who has permission to act within the network or not. And in the Bitcoin context, there is absolutely a valid question of where, what is the role of governmental regulation? But mm -hmm. also within the system, there are a, a number of regulatory mechanisms built into the software that are intended to regulate usage of it and ensure that only playing by the rules is effectively allowed. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin as a system is basically designed so that the only way to break the rules is to acquire more hardware than everybody else combined. You have to, you know, if there's a hundred billion dollars in computers running mm -hmm. the Bitcoin network, and I want to break the rules, that system of cryptography and, and economics means provably that I have to acquire $101 billion mm. worth of compute and to overpower it. the system. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. Understood. All right. My last mm -hmm. question about Bitcoin is, do you think it is too late to start investing in? Um, you know, honestly, and this is not me trying to protect myself. I've never advised people to buy Bitcoin. It's highly risky. I have no mm. idea what motivates the price, what the ultimate price is. It is entirely possible for Bitcoin to go to zero. Mm -hmm. I would say that Bitcoin is not a good hedge against inflation. That is a common narrative that you have. However, demonstrably, if you run the statistics on it, it's not a good hedge against inflation. It's incredibly volatile. And if you play the volatility of Bitcoin, you can make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But like I said, competition exists. Competition is possible. Obviously, there are people who will argue otherwise. I would just say as far as people who are considering investing, first of all, it's sufficiently risky that obvious advice would be don't spend enough, don't spend anything you aren't willing to lose completely. I'm not giving investment advice. I think it would be wise to not spend anything you can't afford to lose. As far as, yeah, so it's just incredibly risky. And if you, the idea behind an inflation hedge is that as inflation, as say, when, when we talk about an inflation hedge, you're talking about basically the US dollar, or you're talking about some fiat currency. And what you're saying is that as the fiat currency goes down in value, as it becomes less valuable, then the asset that you're acquiring should go up in lockstep. That's what an inflation hedge does. It goes mm -hmm. up as the other thing goes down. And Bitcoin doesn't do that. It goes up sometimes, mm. it goes down sometimes, it goes down a lot sometimes, it goes up crazy amounts sometimes. And I think that it's just important, in my opinion, as somebody who holds some Bitcoin, not as much as I'd like, for people to be realistic and to understand that fundamental reality, because you just can't argue with that fact. It goes up well, crazy why does amounts. It do that? And it because it's purely a speculative asset still. That's what uh, happens when you okay. have purely speculative assets, because if an asset isn't speculative, um, what that means is that there's some underlying value to it that acts as a base on the mm -hmm. floor. So for example, Tesla, I would say that for a long time, Tesla was a purely speculative asset. It was highly volatile. 
it's still pretty speculative and it's still pretty volatile. But at the end of the day, they make cars and they sell those cars right. for a price and they sell more yeah. cars over time. And you could really look at that pattern and make some educated guesses about how many cars they're going to sell in the future. And so that right. acts as a stabilizer on the price of their shares. There, that doesn't exist for Bitcoin, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, yet. Okay. Understood. Got it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on the podcast. I have learned all of the things about Bitcoin that I really didn't honestly did not know before. So this has been very helpful for me. If we want to find you and what you're working on online, where can we look? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrarchy. That's my username. Uh, of course, the protocol that we're building is the Coinos blockchain. You can find that at Coinos.io. Our company is Coinos Group. You can find that at Coinos.group. Okay, perfect. I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for joining me on my crypto journey as we figure out what the hell is going on in this space. Until next week, stay awkward and weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye-bye. Afternoon podcast.